You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show on 710KURV. Here's Sergio. Well, it's the start of another year, and you know how it is with gyms and personal trainers. Man, it seems that they're working 24 hours a day, especially at the beginning of the year. So I find it a miracle that I'm able to speak with certified personal trainer Greg McCoy right now. Happy New Year, Greg. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I bet you're busier. It's Super Bowl season for you right now, right? Yeah, this is uh, this is the, the CPA in April and the personal trainer in January. This is our time of the year. Okay, man. Well, I... I called you, and I appreciate you taking the call. I called you about this all-meat lion diet that's popular on social media. I think it's like meat and salt and water. Uh, are you familiar with it? Are people coming to you asking you about this thing? Yeah, it's uh, it's getting popular. Um, it, it's been around a while, actually, under a different name. People have been doing this for the last few years, and it's been called the carnivore diet. Um TikTok has kind of rebranded it as the lion diet and it's picking up steam. So of course, you know, people come to us with all kinds of ideas and um, there's usually some extreme trend at the start of the year that people are hoping is the Hail Mary uh, that's going to win the game for them early. Um, but it's, you know, like anything, it's it's got some issues um, and something that we advise our clients to work through, and I'd be happy to talk to you guys about it this morning. All right. Uh, Greg McCoy, he's a personal trainer, certified personal trainer. The Lion Diet, uh, you a fan of it, or you have concerns? You know, it's, so why it was created, um, it, it was created, one, it's uh, it's high in protein. It's basically a ketogenic diet, which there's a lot of people that are pro-ketogenic diet, and I'm not against ketogenic diets. That's basically high protein, moderate to high fats, and no carbohydrates. Um, you don't feel well when you do these diets. They are very effective. Um, you, you can lose some body fat, definitely lose weight when you do these diets, but they're just really difficult because you don't feel good when you're doing it. Um, so this is the most extreme version of that. You know, you're not eating in a ketogenic diet. Generally you can eat vegetables and things. Um, this, you're not eating, um, any outside fat sources. You're not eating any vegetables. Um, and you're not eating any carbohydrates, so that means no fruits, no grains, et cetera. Yeah. Um, when, when you do that, you're missing on out a, a lot of micronutrients. So you're probably going to have to take a lot of nutritional supplements if you want, don't want to be deficient in basically all kinds of micronutrients that you know help your immune system and all these things. Um, and then the big issue, if you were to try something like this long term, um, is there's no fiber. Um, you're not getting any kind of fiber, which um, it's not going to kill you today. It's not going to kill you next week or even next month, but there's so much research about the benefits of fiber and prevention of cancer and lowering cholesterol, which leads to heart disease, which is our number one killer in America. Um, so it's, you would have issues if you try to sustain this for long, but it was invented to, uh, remove inflammatory foods from the diet and help people with their gut health and, and, and alleviate some issues. But if you want to try it, you know, I wouldn't stay on it for more than a couple of weeks, um, but certainly nothing that's sustainable at all. When you say folks don't feel good, is that for everyone? And are you referring to what, feeling sleepy, sluggish, uh, your tummy hurting, or what, what is it that you hear from people taking this thing? You know, it's not for, not everyone. Some people do well on a ketogenic diet. So people fall into two camps. You, you either um, are a fat driven metabolism or a carb driven metabolism. And it's good that you would know which one that you are, but most people, um, you know, your body's having to convert protein into glucose. It's not an efficient process at all. 
Um, and so you just feel sluggish, um, I guess would be the best way to put it. Some people would report um, feeling mentally foggy. So, um, you know, if, if, especially if you're a knowledge worker in today's economy, that's not a good thing. Um, it, you know, if you're having trouble connecting the dots of your thoughts um, and, and just having low energy, that's probably going to have a negative effect on your, you okay. know, your day to day. The all meats, they call it lion diet. It's just a rebrand of just an all meat diet. It's popular online. And my guest is certified personal trainer, Greg McCoy. All right, brother. So give me something sustainable. Let, let's say people change up their routine a little bit, do a bit more walking, not necessarily a lot of exercise, but they just try to increase their activity a little bit for 2023. What type of diet should they go on uh, and on what schedule in order to lose weight and stay healthy? What would you recommend? You know, my favorite diet, all diets work. That's something that's been proven. Um, low carb works, low fat works. Um, you know, intermittent fasting works. There's all kinds of diets that work. My favorite one to advise clients to do is three meals with two protein shakes in between. Um, it allows you to get enough protein in a high protein diet, in my opinion, is the best way to lose body fat, uh, maintain your muscle mass, which is important for your metabolism and your structure. Um, and it, you don't get overly hungry throughout the day because you're eating, you know, you're eating basically, if you consider the shake eating, you're eating five times throughout the day. So your, your propensity to overeat goes away. Um, and it's pretty easy to stick to. I mean, everyone's going to eat three square meals. You put the shakes in the middle, um, and it's really not a difficult thing to adhere to. And that's where we've got the, the best results with our clients and members. What, what if a work schedule is just, just too much for some people where maybe they just eat one good meal a day with the other would the shakes help or would they run a risk of losing some type of essential nutrition with those as you said protein shakes or uh, and by the way what type of shakes there's so many different types of shakes what 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 shakes are you looking for <laughs> yeah you know it's uh it, we it's hard to get into the details here with, with a diverse group of people but you um you know if if you have a propensity to gain weight you're probably going to want one that's only protein, low in sugar, low in fat. Um, if you have a, a faster metabolism or you're on the thinner side, you might want more of a meal replacement shake. This is going to have some healthy fats, some healthy carbohydrates. Maybe you mix some fruit into it. Um, but a lot of these are reinforced with um, micronutrients. So you are getting nutrition there, but you would rely on your three kind of food meals for the bulk of your nutrition in this type of plan. How about just eating once a day, big dinner, big dinner right before sleep, and wash it down with a shake? How about that? <laughs> um, you know, it could work in theory. Most really? people that are extremely busy uh, undereat throughout the week and then way overeat over the weekend, yeah. and their net calories for a seven-day period are in surplus. And so they spend the week hungry, undereating. Their metabolism is lowering day by day, and then they binge eat on the weekends. That's yeah. uh, a trend we see over and over and over again, um, and it, it doesn't work. It definitely goes in the wrong direction. So I would say the person eating one meal a day at some point is going to break and, and overeat. Certified personal trainer Greg McCoy. For 2023, aside from what I mentioned, some walking, maybe light running, walk, any other uh, type of activity, exercise, easy stuff that you'd recommend folks adopt in 23 to yeah, be more active? If if we're talking diet advice, one of the best studies, I refer to this all the time, it was done at Oxford and it was a behavioral weight loss study. And 
the number one weight loss advice that they came up with was to prepare your meals in advance. Um, the folks that were preparing their meals in advance, even, you know, without getting complicated in the diet, made better progress. And it makes sense. You know, you're intentional about what you're putting in, in your food for the next day. Um, you're not going to get in a position where you um, don't have something healthy to eat, where you have to rely on uh, something convenient or fast food or making a bad decision because you're overly hungry. So that's one thing that we like to do this behavioral is just prepare your meals in advance, be intentional about it. Um, and it's the, the results will, will happen more times than not with that situation. You interact online with folks who reach out to you? Yeah, we, we certainly do. Hiddengym.net, you can find us. We do remote training um, as well hmm. as in person. Hidden Gym. Dot net, you said. Hidden yes, that's the one. All right. Greg, success to you in 23, brother. Thank you for all the advice that you provided us today. He's You're welcome. Certified personal trainer, Greg McCoy. This is The Sergio Show. You're always on the go. Obviously pretty busy. Busy with work. Picking up my kids from school. From work to kids to running errands. Your entire day is a hands-on, never-ending frenzy of activity. Luckily, getting the news is now voice activated. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURB. I'd like to know what's going on in my world. I gotta know what's going on in my city. Putting the smart in your smart speaker. I'm getting my news from you and my information. For the latest news and to find out what's happening in rich, clear audio. Just say, Alexa, play 710 KURB. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. Some folks in the business world keep saying that uh, we might see cheaper stuff on the shelves as a result of retail outlets, retailers having to get rid of some of their merchandise. And it's the theoretical um, cycle of what the Fed is trying to do and trying to tap the brakes on the economy, right? So you um, make money more expensive, raise rates, and uh, that way you tap the brakes on spending because it's more expensive to borrow, to buy stuff, and then you got retailers that increase inventory and they got they got to move that stuff off the show seasonally, in fact. They got to move that stuff, go to the warehouse, and you see a decline in prices. Let me bring an expert in, in retail who's got a lifetime plus experience on this. Rich Hollander. Check check out his resume. Check out Rich. President at Cash America at one time. Vice President at Radio Shack. Remember them at one time? President of Rent Attire. They were one of my clients years ago, one of the first radio clients. Uh, Vice President at MasterCard. Okay, Rich, so for folks that are in the retail business and in the business of selling stuff, what would you say to them at the beginning of 2023 when you know everybody says we're going to have this big recession and they're going to have to they're going to have increased inventory they're going to have to sell you know take a cut uh, on some of that um, some of those margins what would you tell folks in retail that might be a bit nervous about 2023 well the first thing i tell them is there's three and a half percent unemployment which is a record low unemployment so don't really believe everything that you hear about a recession it's not here yet there are people that are talking about it, no question about that, but why don't you wait and see whether it's gonna happen or not rather than talking yourself into it. So that'd be the first thing I do. There is excess inventory out there and you're seeing companies like TJ 
Max and Marshalls, which is all part of TJX Group, and Ross Storage, which is doing a fantastic job, and um, Burlington, which is also doing a very good job, um, uh, Five Below, which is doing a very good job. You see those guys out buying this excess inventory. Well, that's pretty and good. So, so we'll see some good stuff at those favorite retailers here pretty soon. So maybe we'll see some really, really nice stuff. But when it comes to business, though, and job creation or job retention, might that be a negative here pretty soon as some of these companies, they need to trim the fat? I don't think so. I think there's going to be some fat trimming in technology stocks, okay. technology companies like Salesforce.com and Meta and Amazon and such that have just too got too fat and didn't trim when they should, and now they're going to have to do all that. You 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 see retailers that just have are, some of them are not taking care of their inventory. Uh, most of them now have really spent a long time getting their inventory in line. And I think the supply chain is going to be a little messed up because China, is, which is a big part of the supply chain, now has people going back and uh, into the into the work world. And, you know, they're going to get sick and they're going to get COVID and that's going to slow things aye, down. Aye. Um, so inventories are going to start getting a little messed up again, but they're in way better shape today than they were last year at this point and and um things are just you know retailers have gotten religion about inventory control retail pro rich hollander is my guest i really appreciate his insight and, and speaking of china and production in china and how they shut down society uh they're trying to go to zero COVID. i i don't that's not sustainable are we hopelessly addicted to chinese vietnamese and philippine asian manufacturing or is there what do you hear from amigos and, and friends and retail and business and manufacturing? Is there any hope that we can bring back, reshore some of these companies, uh, not only to uh, America, I but Mexico is. and Central America, I, other I places? Think, yeah. I think there's a lot of uh, a lot going on with technology. The U.S. has the, the lowest cost of, of energy anywhere in the industrial world, so you see a lot of that going on. Um, so I think I, I am uh, very positive about all of this. In order to not be so vulnerable, though, because, for example, there was uh, during the COVID shutdown, they said like 90 percent of the acetaminophen was produced overseas in Asia and China. It's like, crap, we're not we're not going to get any fever reducers anytime soon because they're going to keep those boats over there. It's like like nine to one ratio with many items are still being produced over there. What would be a more comfortable like? 50-50 ratio, bring it back? Because that's a lot well, of industry. That's a lot of jobs. I, I, I think there's lots of things you can do. I, I actually think our friends south of the border are seeing some of the technology jobs move over there because they're creating more technology employees out of there. It isn't going to happen overnight. It yeah. didn't, we didn't get into the problem we're in overnight, but I think you'll see more and more uh, of these manufacturing well. jobs come back to the United States. You know how they say. Yeah. It's technology. Look, can I talk about retail and a trend that, that I'm seeing yeah. um, for just a second? Yeah, sure. I, I think one of the things that, that I am seeing is the understanding by the best of the best retailers, the Costco's of the world, that if you take care of your employees, your employees will take care of your customers, and your customers will take care of your cash registers. 
So that is you treat your employees exactly how you want them to treat your customers. And it's happening with, with you, you look at a Lululemon, same things happening there. You look at, at a tractor supply, you see the same thing happening there. You know, you, you look at in the food business, look at Chick-fil-A and how much happier employees are in Chick-fil-A where their productivity is the best of anybody in the QSR business. And it's because the, they treat their employees with respect and the employees then treat their customers the same way. Okay. You don't walk into a Chick-fil-A and see somebody leaning on the counter. They, yeah. You just don't, it doesn't happen. And it's because they respect their employees and they, and, and that's a that's really important. Same they, thing at Costco. Yeah. You go into your local Costco in McAllen, Texas, and I guarantee you've got people there that have been there since the store opened. And back to Chick Fil A, part of it is I think how they interview folks. They just they got the cream of the crop. They some got some good kids, good people at Chick Fil A. And uh, around here in Texas, we have H uh, E B. I lovingly refer to H E oh. Butt because uh, Butt that's the name of the fabulous, of B, right? fabulous, great company, the, the best grocery retailer in America. Yeah, and the story by far. Yes, sir. By far, we have a central market in Fort Worth, Texas, and I live in Fort Worth. And it's been open 25 years. You have employees there that have been there since the store opened. What is it, Rich? What are they? Is is it because the the employees are invested? They they uh, they buy stock no, in the company, or? because H E B is run by the family, and so they treat their employees like family. Okay. It's the same thing we had at Radio Shack. It was all one big family until it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And you know, with H E B. They treat their employees like they're part of their family, and they and they make decisions about those employees and when those employees are going to work and when the store's going to be open, just like they would as if they were working there. Because guess what, they've all done that job. All right, Rich. they've all been promoted from within, and I think that's the big trend. You want to talk about trends in retail? That's the big trend. All right. Here at, at our little company, and the company's called Accelera where we have about 300 people that kind of look like me. They're all old. <laughs> They've been around. They know lots of people. And we have one rule. And the rule's simple. You have to be nice. If you're not nice, then you don't get to be our client. There we go. And, yeah, it, it's amazing how it changes the whole discussion that you have with customers because you're there to try to help them. And the same thing happens in retail stores. Mm-hmm. You go to a tractor supply store. It's like it's your neighbor running the store. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, and I, I hope that trend continues, Rich, because it's um, it, it's nice it to hear will the people. If we talk about it, yeah. Well, it's nice to hear the people are taken care of when they work for companies like that. Uh, yep. And in the end, the customer. You know, oh, we all benefit from that. Actually, the customers walking through the door benefit uh, from it as well. Absolutely, yeah. they do. They, they absolutely do. I yeah. remember I was walking in the parking lot in a of a mall, Solana Mall in Fairfield, California. And I was walking with, uh, I was a president of the division of Tandy Corporation at that point. And I was walking with one of my regional managers and we heard these two ladies. The lady said, you know what? I always buy a Radio Shack because I, I know they'll always take care of me. I thought, oh my God, where's my microphone when I <laughs> want to record this? That, that's, that's the key. Yeah. And that was the key to Radio Shack. Yeah. And so it wasn't. And well, I miss Radio and Shack. That's, yeah. And that's, that's the key to Costco. Yeah. You know, they they ha- always have great prices. They don't always have the lowest price, 
they always have great prices. Yeah. And, and they and they don't and they work hard to deliver those to the customer. I mean, the shopping experience is nice enough. Heck, you'll pay an extra five ten cents here or there just not to drive across town to go buy somewhere else. I mean, that's, that's exactly yeah. right because my friend works there. Yeah. All right, brother. Hey, Even if you don't know their name. All right, well, thank you very much I for your time. Appreciate your insight. Call you again, Rich. You take care. All right. Uh, Rich Bye Hollander, now. retail expert. This is The Sergio Show. Start your day with news and interviews important to you with the Valley's morning news. Weekday morning starting at 6. Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan bring you the latest headlines and hourly discussions with AccuWeather to get you ready for your day and special guest interviews on topics that affect you and your family. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Yeah, good morning, guys. Well, let's now enjoy the show. It's what you need to start your day. The Valley's morning news with Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan. Weekday morning starting at 6 on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. Duncan Wood is vice president of strategy and new initiatives. At one time, was the head of the Mexico Institute at the D.C.-based Wilson Center, that big think tank. Happy New Year, Duncan. It's so good to talk to you again. How you doing, friend? Sergio, feliz año. How you doing, man? Feliz año, amigo. Okay, so let's start with Amo's comment. What do you make of what he said that the U.S., has ignored Latin America for the longest time, overemphasized Asian-based investment, factories, consumer goods being provided over there to the point that maybe we're now overly dependent on Asia, China. So what do you make of those comments from AMLO? So first of all, I mean, I'd say that uh, he's not wrong. I mean, but I think he's speaking to the wrong audience there. You know, U.S. business um, has focused on Asia because of the relative uh, low, relatively low cost of doing business over there, um, you know the uh, the extraordinary infrastructure investments which have been made in Asia, um, and the fact that you have a high degree of uh, of legal certainty in your investments over there, which is stands in stark contrast to uh, to Latin America. Um, you know, in Latin America, we've seen. Uh, you know, a pendulum swing from left to right. We've seen uh, lack of legal certainty on investments. We've seen a hard, uh, a not a not very amenable business and investment climate for many, many years. Could the U.S. government have done more? Absolutely. And in fact, what we hear time and time again in uh, in Washington from folks throughout the hemisphere is that they're in fact doing business with China not because they necessarily want to, but because the U.S. isn't there. Now, what we have seen, to be fair to, uh, to President Biden, under Joe Biden, we've seen more of a turn towards the hemisphere. We're seeing an increasing trend anyway that happened, that began before President Biden, of a decoupling process from China. Um, COVID, of course, forced us to focus our, yeah. uh, our supply chains closer to home, yep. near-shoring, friend-shoring, ally-shoring, etc., so I think what we're seeing right now is, in fact, a concerted effort by both business and government to focus on North America, Latin America, as well as friendly countries around the world. And that right now includes Vietnam, for example, uh, but certainly away from China. So what AMLO is talking about, if he's chastising the United States for ignoring Latin America, 
In part, he's right. It's probably not the government. The government could always have done more, of course, to encourage that. But business is going to go and invest where it makes sense to invest. Yeah. And in fact, if you look at where business has been investing, Sergio, they've been investing in Mexico. You know, total U.S. FDI in China is around $100 billion. Total U.S. FDI in Mexico is $185, $190 billion. And that's growing rapidly now with the process of decoupling from China. So could the rest of the region have benefited more? Absolutely. But the rest of the region needs to fix its policies. It needs to fix its investment environment. It needs to fix, in many cases, its democratic practices so that this becomes a much more attractive region for investment. Yes, sir. Duncan Wood is with the Wilson Center of the Think Tank up in D.C. Still, I consider him one of the top experts when it comes to Latin America, especially Mexico. He ran the Mexico Institute for the longest time. And I started my conversation with Duncan on what AMLO had said, that he was complaining to Joe Biden, as Joe Biden is in Mexico City, that the U.S. has ignored Latin America for the longest time. When it comes to foreign investment, take me back to that uh, FDI, the foreign direct investment number that you fleshed out. Give me those numbers again when, in comparison of those two numbers you gave me just a second ago. I want to write them down. Yeah, so up to uh, 2021, the United States had around a, just over $100 billion in fixed uh, direct investment in China. Uh, in Mexico, however, it's around 185. Okay, in Mexico. If we're seeing some decoupling, as you mentioned, and it started under Trump, and COVID was a big scare, do you recall those headlines on how things like antibiotics, the ingredients for acetaminophen, uh, the fever reducers, masks, personal protection equipment, like the overwhelming majority, like the 9 to 1 ratio at times, produced in China. And those big boats from China, they just did the U-turn. They went on back to China because they had to protect their people. And we got caught with our pants down. We were desperately looking for personal protection equipment around here. That was a a big wake-up call. I I don't know if on the medical front they're doing what is taking place on the computer chip front. I can only hope that they are. What do you know? What do you hear? Is Mexico going to get some of those clean rooms and produce personal protection equipment, maybe some of the ingredients for some of these medicines, pharmaceuticals that we need. We need to reshore, bring back the medicine and the medical stuff and the medical equipment to the Western Hemisphere, at least the Western Hemisphere. Absolutely. Listen, um, medic, uh, Mexico um, is a major hub for medical device manufacture, um, which is highly inter- integrated into the rest of uh, North America. Um, we see that it has a, a, a a very healthy, strong pharmaceutical industry, heavy investments from all of the major U.S. and indeed global um, uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers. The problem that we face in Mexico, however, is the regulatory environment for pharmaceuticals. What we've seen, particularly during this administration of Andres Manuel López Obrador, is that there have been a number of moves which have made it much more difficult for major manufacturers to actually produce their medicines in Mexico. And that's because of meaningless, needless regulations that have been put in place by the AMLO uh, administration. And so, in fact, what some uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers have done is actually to divest, or rather, not to divest, sorry, to take away manufacturing capacity from Mexico and put it back in the United States, because they've realized that, in fact, they can't depend upon the regulatory environment down there. That's a major problem. Now, when it comes to a pandemic, I'm afraid all bets are off. You know, we saw that in the case of Uh, the United States stopping the shipment of certain medical equipment to Canada 
during the uh, the pandemic. Right. So even if we do reshore, nearshore everything, then it's still not going to be the the perfect solution. But I do agree, Sergio, that uh, Mexico should be a much more important hub for the manufacture yes, of medical devices, medical equipment, PPE, etc. But me- Mexico again has to um, really has to improve the environment there and the regulatory situation in particular. Yeah, well, the underpinnings are becoming stronger, the foundation stronger for them to survive long-term as being part of NAFTA. I, I wish this, I could say the same for Central America and South America. Joe Biden uh, pushed back uh, on AMLO's comment and, and said, well, you know, we've provided more foreign investment. I wish I could talk more like an old man, like a tired old man. We've provided more foreign investment, blah, 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 blah. He wasn't talking about a welfare check. AMLO was not talking about a welfare check. He was talking about direct investment, setting up factories, assembly lines, and business. But I think the easy response for Joe Biden, poor man, I, sometimes I don't think he knows where he is. He should have said one word. Venezuela. Venezuela. And all the corporations taken over by all these leftists, these radical leftists, these communists, uh, the ownership taken over. So from car manufacturing, GM, to all these other corporations, it's like the state took over. And yeah, you talk about certainty of investment. When you have a, a, a mammoth country like Venezuela taking over, all these communists taking over, yeah, that would have been the quick response. Yeah, got to work together. And Sergio, this yeah. is the big difference between the United States and a country like China. China tells its businesses where to invest. The United States government, thank God, doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we live in a in a in a, uh, in a country where the private sector is free to invest in what it wants to invest in. It's free to invest where it wants to invest, in large part. And that means that there's only so much that the U.S. government can do. And I think most people celebrate that or should celebrate that on a daily basis. So even though, you know, it would be lovely to see a lot more money going into Central America, let's raise those standards of living. Let's try to solve the migration problem at its, uh, its root. Yeah. The challenge is, unless it makes sense to invest there, companies aren't going to do it. Duncan, I know i got to let you go. Blessings and success in 2023 friend we'll talk we'll call you again duncan thank you so much for your time today duncan wood with a think tank wilson center up in dc still a mexico expert this is the sergio show Talk 710 KURV. When news breaks, we break in. Breaking news. Stay alert and listen to the weather forecast. We need to be aware and alert to what's going on. Breaking news means it's happening now. We mean now. Breaking news underway right now. Breaking news. On News Talk 710 KURV means we're bringing you the news as it happens. We have In this particular instance, we are in receipt of information. When news breaks, we'll break in. Count on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. In business news, we hear about the Fed raising the price of money. It's going to cost us more to borrow money to buy stuff, cars and homes and, and all that. They're hoping to tap the brakes on spending, increase inventory, they slash the prices on the inventory, all that. You, you've heard that before. But why are food prices not coming down? Why, why, are, they, why are they so sticky? Uh, 
Stephen Patterson, financial strategist, is my guest. Let's start there, Stephen. Why is a dozen eggs costing us like eight, nine bucks at the grocery store these days? Yeah, I think that you have a couple of different factors happening right now. Um, you know, gas prices directly in fact affect food prices significantly. Uh, obviously, our uh, farmers and ranchers use a tremendous amount of diesel tending to their herds and crops. Um, and so any any spike in gas prices directly impacts food uh, because those margins are so thin. It costs more to get it to the grocery store, uh, et cetera. Uh, the other thing that you're dealing with is uh, you've got some supply chain issues still going on. You have uh, trucking problems. You have logistical issues related to COVID. And so even though we're seeing prices come down, uh, much of the food that you're now buying at the grocery store uh, was produced at a time uh, when those prices were still high. So it's going to take a little bit of time to work that through the system for you to feel some relief uh, when you get to the cash register. Yeah. And it might have been a bit myopic of me to you know, ask about the egg price of eggs because they've got their own issues in the poultry industry with bird flu and you know stocks of these birds dying and, and all those things. But the bigger question when it comes to inflation, Steve, is 2% inflation, which was the norm for us, right, about 2% annually. Do you see that number coming back anytime in the future where year to year we'd say, yeah, we're up – 1.7, 2.1 compared to this time last year. Do you see it? Um, it's going to be incredibly challenging. Um, you know, you have two real issues right now that are going to affect that. Uh, the first is you have a completely inefficient energy policy domestically. Um, and so without uh, an efficient energy policy, those prices will affect every consumer good and service that you purchase. The second issue you have is you, you spoke to it earlier. You know, the Fed is continuing to raise rates, uh, will be continuing to raise rates uh, for at least the next six months. Um, and so as, as those prices go up, it's locking more people out of home ownership, uh, which is affecting rent prices at the rental level. Um, so, you know, the idea that we'll be back to that 2% or less inflation yeah. uh, in the immediate future, I, I don't think so. I think that's probably uh, 12 to 24 months away. Okay. Recession. Do you see any evidence of recession? By the way, let me reintroduce your financial strategist, director of client relations at Key City. Uh, I have Stephen Patterson as my guest right now. Do you see any evidence of recession right now? Oh, I think so. Um, I think we'll we'll have firm indicators uh, once the Q4 earnings reports come out. Several retailers are already saying that they feel like they're going to miss their targets. Um, so I, I, I believe we're there. I believe we're seeing some layoffs already, um, especially at the distribution levels, Amazon, FedEx, some of those that we saw leading into the holiday season. Okay. Uh, the question really remains is how long does this recession, um, at whatever level, how long does it last? How long does it go? Um, I think with the Fed continuing to raise rates and frankly saying we're, we're not satisfied with where we are, we're going to get another, at least another point of increases over the next six months. Um, you know, how many layoffs occur? 
how expensive does money get? Um, you know, we're seeing the housing market begin to cool, even though there's no inventory, we're still hmm. seeing prices begin to cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's how long does it ta- how long does it last is the real question. Yeah, and it's a question that needs to be answered so we can stop the Fed from raising the price of money, because if there's no strong evidence of that, they're going to continue to jack up those prices and make everything more expensive for us to purchase. All sorts of stuff. I, I can tell you just anecdotally, and this, but it's a rather big one, though, Steve. Here in, in southern Texas, we keep an eye on northern Mexico industrial production with all the U.S. and foreign, European, Asian plants, the industrial north of Mexico, the maquilas, the, these factories. They're not slowing down, buddy. Usually they're a, they're a lagging indicator. I'm sorry. Usually they're a leading indicator. Northern Mexico manufacturing, this has been true of many recessions in the past. If Northern Mexico slows down, the order stop coming in, here comes the recession. They're firing on all cylinders. We can't get enough steel slabs, steel rolled to them. They, they're continuing to work full time. I don't think there's a slowdown anywhere right now, so I'm thinking the Fed is just going to continue raising rates until I see those factories slow down in Northern Mexico. What do you think? Oh, I think you're spot on. Um, and, you know, that's and, and and that's part of the issue, right? Um, you know, the American consumer is using a tremendous amount of debt right now to continue to finance the livestock. Uh, we've seen that month over month from the credit reporting agencies showing that uh, credit card usages are at all-time highs. Um, but as we learned in 2008, eventually the music stops and the party ends. Hmm. Um, those credit cards are only going to last for so long. And my my deep fear right now is we're going to have some consumers that really get hurt because they're using credit cards to close the gap. Interest rates are rising, and those minimum payments are going to be significantly higher than what they've seen in the past. Do you think, uh, financial strategist from Key City Capital, Stephen Patterson, uh, final question for you. Talk about a sticky number, wages. Wages have been going up as a result of all this inflation and the problems in the labor market. People, companies trying to keep good people and attract better people, and it's just a lot of people sitting on the side. It's just this whole COVID thing was a a kick in the groin and in the stomach at the same time. Uh, and wages have gone up. Those wages ain't going down, Steve. That that's a permanent no. inflationary number. It's here to stay, and that's somehow that's going to bake and ruin the cake sometime in the future well and the federal government put their hand in it and you know let's let's be honest where when the government begins to get involved in everyday life uh, it's typically not a good thing Uh, when when the $15 minimum wage started to hit across federal agencies that that caused it to uh, spiral into private agencies so labor prices went up substantially um, that and and that trickled up through the system, right? Um, and so I, I think, you know, a, in a free market economy, we, we need to let the free market do what it does. Unfortunately, uh, you know, we put our finger on the scale, and I yeah. think that was just the beginning of some of the ripple effects uh, that we're seeing right now with inflation, with the cost of goods, and the labor market. Steve, thank you for your commentary. We'll call you again. Stephen Patterson with Key City Capital. This is The Sergio Show.
you're always on the go. Obviously pretty busy. Busy with work. Picking up my kids from school. From work to kids. They're running errands. Your entire day is a hands-on, never-ending frenzy of activity. Luckily, getting the news is now voice activated. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURB. I'd like to know what's going on in my world. I gotta know what's going on in my city. Putting the smart in your smart speaker. I'm getting my news from you and my information. For the latest news and to find out what's happening in rich, clear audio. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURB. Let me head over to my friends and family over at DHRL. Dr. Andrew Phillips is my guest. And he, I understand he's an expert in emergency room operations, intensive care specialist. Dr. Phillips, Happy New Year. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Tell folks, uh, working people right now, what do you do for a living, sir? Day-to-day over at DHR. Explain to me what you do at DHR. Well, good morning, Sergio. Thank you for having me on. Yes, sir. So, well, I'm a little uh, unique amongst the group of us who works there because I also spend some time at Stark County Rural Hospital in the ER there. Hmm. And, uh, you know, in the ICU, it is a little bit of everything. So DHR has neuro ICUs, cardiovascular ICUs, uh, any sort of critical care is is covered. And that's all part of it, actually. A little bit of everything, which makes it a very enjoyable practice. How many years have you been doing this? Uh, critical care specifically, around eight. Well, that's pretty good. Uh, is, the D- is South Texas, um, I'm sure it's one of many markets that you have worked on. Tell me about the other places you've been at. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, actually, I've been around the country. I worked over in California. I trained at Stanford and worked out there for a while. And then I was faculty at UNC Chapel Hill for a while. And uh, now I'm here back home, born and raised here in Mission. So glad to be home. Came here to bring the ECMO program to the Valley. Yeah, that's why I called you that ECMO thing. Okay, let me go back to I'm going to pretend to be smart here and try to pronounce these words. Stand by. Extracorporeal membrane oxygen oxygenation oh, i almost got it i almost sorry. that's why we call it ecmo <laughs> there we go <laughs> what is this expo uh, ecmo um product that you have now at, at dhr so it is the single most sophisticated life support system that you can find anywhere uh in any hospital internationally place i mentioned stanford others you know any big center this is the highest level of uh, life support that they would have. And it's, um, you know, even the ventilator that people are fairly familiar with sometimes can't save people. And uh, even the, the most drugs we can possibly give to keep the heart pumping sometimes can't, can't do the job. And this machine um, takes, it's basically a, a heart-lung machine for long-term use. The same concept of what they use for cardiothoracic surgery well, we uh, take that to the bedside and can can nurture people along when they are just really, really ill. Man, how do you know when to use something like this? Because uh, you're explaining something to me that works heart and lung. I'm thinking, okay, it's great for surgery. Make sure somebody you know, stays with you long enough for it to, you know, to survive surgery. But in a trauma situation, and you guys being trauma one there at DHR, man, I would imagine you would have scenarios where you might be tempted to use something like this. How do you know when and when not to use an ECMO? That's a great question, and it takes a lot of experience to, to uh, select the people who really have a chance because, so as, as it is, uh, depending on which kind of, of ECMO you're doing, if you're supporting the heart or the, heart or the lungs, uh, there's a, a 40 to 60% mortality. So around half of patients, even on this machine, will, will unfortunately 
you know, still still die. But that other half, right, would have otherwise died. So we look at this as a, a salvage, and it does. Half the time, we're able to um, rescue people who otherwise would have died, and a lot of it is um, what other things they have going on to some degree. A large reaction, it's, it's age as well. Um, it, there are a lot of criteria that we use. There are guidelines that we're going to use for our program as well uh, that help us try to select the, the people who have the best shot of making it on this device. From DHR Health, I'm going to call him ER's specialist. He's more than that. Dr. Andrew Phillips, my guest, we're talking about this ECMO system that would keep you alive. And it would be, most of the cases would be an emergency. Dr. Phillips, like somebody comes in and suffered some severe trauma or something like that. Is, is that would that be the majority of cases where you would be tempted to use an, an ECMO machine to keep somebody alive? Uh, maybe 50-50. Some of them are people just progress quickly. Uh, people, I think, uh, may have seen in the news previously during COVID, uh, people may start on a nasal cannula and then end up on the ventilator and then wind up on ECMO. Uh, another, uh, now that, that you know COVID, thank goodness, the numbers have, have dwindled compared to the, the peaks. Uh, a big use, I think you're going to see ECMO down in the valley since we have so much cardiovascular disease is for those massive heart attacks. Uh, and that often is within the first few hours, the, the oh. widowmakers. Um, this is support. This is huge support for those patients who just need a tincture of time uh, to slow the uh, the effects of that heart attack. Does it work? Big indication for Does it. it work like an artificial heart? Does it work like artificial lungs as well to keep folks you know, alive uh, artificially for a while? Yeah. Describe it for me. You could. You could call it that. So it's, it's actually a fascinating physiology. It's, so there are uh, tubes that are placed into the arteries and veins of the, the patient large, where they really are, um, they're, they're, they're not small catheters. Uh, the blood comes out from the patient, and, and there's a, a pump that then sends the blood through an oxygenator, where oxygen is pushed through into the blood, just fills it all the way up, and then it flows back into the body uh, quite quickly, actually, uh, commonly will run somewhere between three and a half and five and a half liters per minute. So it's very rapid blood exchange. It's like dialysis on steroids then. It couldn't. Something like that. Yeah. It, well, would, it looks very similar. Wow. Hence the name extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, where you know, you're taking the blood, oxygenating it, throwing it back in to feed the brain and every other organ in the body. Fascinating. How many... Do you have a DHR, this ECMO machines? How many do you have? Sure. So we're starting off uh, this program with, we'll just be doing one patient at a time as we get our program settled. We are prepared to run two at a time shortly thereafter. And I'll tell you, one of the exciting things is we have, uh, the, the hospital has invested in the most advanced technology. It's a cardio health. And it is internationally regarded as uh, not just the Cadillac, but the Rolls Royce of these machines. They're extraordinarily safe, extraordinarily portable, uh, and the team has been training on these for months now. We've spent almost a year preparing for all this, so we are we will be very prepared for our first patient. Dr. Andrew Phillips, DHR Health. We're talking about this ECMO technology now on campus, helping folks to survive some serious trauma or maybe some complicated surgery and will oxygenate the blood, throw it back in there and feed all the organs. Well, God bless local decision maker that you guys can look at your board and, you know, uh, buy, as you said, the Cadillac uh, of these machines. How many, how many technicians, how many nurses, how many doctors are required to run these ECMO machines per patient? 
Absolutely. So, uh, you know, to make a full residential program, which is what we have in the past, sometimes um, patients would be put on ECMO and then transferred immediately to San Antonio or Houston or such. So our program is, is different and unique. We need first uh, that um, is a residential program. That is to say the patients will actually stay here through the course of their ECMO circuit. And uh, so that, of course, takes more staff to be able to prepare for all the contingency plans. We're actually running drills right now for, you know, if something happens in the hallway to the CT scanner or to and from the operating room. All the contingency plans are running through that. So we have 15 ECMO specialties. They're nurses and RTs, uh, the best throughout the hospital. We have lots of applications to be a part of this process. And so they've been going through intensive training. The uh, ELSO, the Extracorporeal Life Support Organization, the international um, organization for ECMO actually came to the Valley, to DHR, and gave what is widely considered the gold standard education to these folks and our physicians. So they're, of course, all the critical care physicians. Our ECMO committee is made up of representatives from there, of course, uh, you know, critical care, cardiology, uh, CV surgery, physical therapy, nursing. It is a huge multidisciplinary process because we do plan on walking our, uh, well, it's VD ECMO, it's the, the lung version of the ECMO. We do plan on those patients actually walking. Wow. So it's a, it's a big deal. We're very excited. It is. About this. Yeah. Quite the compliment to the level one trauma status that you now have. You got incredible equipment you're working with now that complements all your efforts there. Anything else you want folks to know about this ECMO I didn't ask you about? Well, actually, you, you brought up the, the one uh, major point that I wanted to make that, that you know, since a little over a year ago, DHR had the first level one trauma center taking care of the most sophisticated trauma patients. With this, it was going to round things out so that we're taking care of the most sophisticated medical patients. And that's, uh, that's what we're here for. We take a lot of pride in that. From DHR Health, Dr. Andrew Phillips, appreciate your time today. Hey, is your official, one of your official titles, is it, you know how they say, trying to learn something new every day? I did. I learned a new word intensivist. I'd never seen that word before. Is that one of your official titles there at DHR, an intensivist physician? Yes. It re- yes, it's uh, for the specialty of critical care. Oh. Thanks, Doc. And uh, I hope never to see you, because if I know, if I see you, th- bad things just happen. <laughs> but uh, unless you want to go for coffee, that, that'd be nice. But uh, thank you, Dr. Phillips. Sounds good. Appreciate your time. From DHR Health, Dr. Andrew Phillips. This is The Sergio Show.